Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 143, I believe. Uh, let me take a look, because I never know, and I probably... Yes, 143. i got to learn to trust my own instincts. So, uh, we've got uh, a lot of ground to cover in this episode, but beforehand, I have seven announcements. A lot of them kind of blend together, but anyway. Uh, so, first off, I recorded a video last week called The Dilemma of the Christian Film. You can find it at morethanonelesson.com. You can also find it on YouTube. Uh, there's been a lot of talk, probably uh, what with War Room being so successful and making so much money, and then Woodlawn coming out and people uh, really talking a lot about that. There's been a lot of discussion on some major websites like Gospel Coalition. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about the quality of Christian film, and, and you of course, you, the listener, you know what I think about it, but uh, there is also another side of people that are just very encouraged by the, the number of Christian films and that sort of thing. So I try to talk about both sides and where we can maybe come together uh, in agreement and, and that sort of thing. So you can find that at morethanonelesson.com. Uh, what's interesting is I, I recorded that video a, a mere few days before I went to see the movie Woodlawn, which I had heard was one of the better Christian films. Of course, I take that with a great deal of skepticism. But uh, I saw it and I wrote a review of it, which is available on morethanonelesson.com, and I thought it was pretty good. Uh, it at least deserves to be compared to it's going to sound terrible, real films. Uh, and on that level, it still is not perfect uh, by, any uh, by any means, but it's, it's interesting. So uh, you can read my review over there. I don't spoil anything. It's not a movie that really lends itself to spoilers, but you can find that over there. And then, let's see, there are a number of other reviews, actually. Uh, I also wrote a review of Steven Spielberg's Bridge of Spies. Uh, Reed Lackey wrote a review of a horror film called The Inhabitants. And then he also finished his three-article series on, I'm not sure what you would call it, but it's, it seems to be a series about how Christians watch movies and how we should watch movies as opposed to how we do. It's a very interesting series. You can find that at the website as well. Uh, a couple more things. The, uh, as I mentioned last time, if you're in the Halloween spirit and you would like to remain uh, so... You can go to BattleshipPretension.com and you can purchase our uh, slasher movie commentaries. We do commentaries about Psycho, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween, uh, Child's Play, and Scream. You can purchase those commentaries for $10 total or $3 each. But obviously you would go for the 10 so you save $5. Uh, uh, and yeah, it's David and I and then uh, a number of guests including Bill Dwyer and Susan Burke and Matt Champagne. And uh, let's see, I feel like, the, and Pat Francis and Mike Schmidt and Paul Goebel, uh, a, lot of, a lot of people, and it was a great deal of fun. So you can find that at battleshippretension.com. Uh, and then lastly, now I'm making this announcement, but I don't know if there's, if anybody can actually attend or if it's just for students. I'm not really sure, to be honest with you. But I'm going to announce this at the very least because we're going to get an audio recording of it and I will be posting it. Uh, on October 30th at Azusa Pacific University, there's going to be a screening of Whiplash and then a panel that will be moderated by me with uh, three of their uh, professors, two film professors and one music professor. 
And so that will be the evening of October 30th. They have told me that they're going to go ahead and record audio of it, and then I will be posting it on here. Now, I know we did just do an episode about Whiplash, but uh, that was just me and Robert. This will be a very different tone, I think, one that is more academic and one that is, to me, more intimidating. So uh, be on the lookout for that. And I believe that is it. Uh, There is only one more real announcement, and that is that our old friend, Josh Long, who's been just looking at his phone during the entirety of these announcements, uh, but that's all right. I assume it's to distract himself, to keep from getting too frightened, because it is is Halloween times. But he's here, he's, he's gathered up his strength to talk about today's movie. Josh, how you doing? I'm doing good. I was just looking at, at pictures of soothing things, you know, like puppies or, right, or like, a, like a sunset. And it's and every once in a while, you know, Google image, a Google image search will really throw you. You'll be like soothing things. And then someone has like a close up photo of a black widow. And it's mm-hmm. like, why? Hmm. And they're just and they, they try to make a point that's like, hey, you know, to each his own. Some people find black widows soothing. I feel like that's not actually true. I feel like anybody who says that's really just trying to bother you. I think so, yeah, probably. Um, And uh, by the way, speaking of such things, uh, a couple weeks ago, Reed and I talked about how monstrous spiders are, and then we were going, uh, and then we recorded an extra special uh, public service announcement that we wound up not posting, (laughs) in which uh, Reed kept me updated on the spider bite that he received on his knee that got infected and swollen and he took antibiotics, but then he had to eventually have his knee drained. And I think he's going to need to have it drained again. People, they're monsters. I, I'm, (laughs) you know, I'll never get tired of telling people that it's, you know, it's important to get the word out. You know, while this is first and foremost, a Christian podcast, a close second is just a public service in which people, can be reminded that spiders just, are indeed monsters just stay away from them and as i was looking and here's the thing so when i was toying with the idea of posting that public service announcement i was looking for an image to and i just went i did google search spiders and i terrified myself <laughs> because they're just the worst mm-hmm. and so and i think that might have been why why we wound up not posting it's like because i can't even i don't have the energy uh, or the bravery to look through these images and find just the right one, just mm-hmm. the one that will be horrifying enough. <laughs> because I know that I will also have to go to morethanonelesson.com from time to time, and I don't want that image sneaking up on me. You could just post a picture of uh, of, of Reed's knee. Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. I think I actually settled on a, on an image of Shelob from, uh, <laughs> from Lord <laughs> of the Rings. Um, so, okay. Uh, Josh, thanks for being here. You're welcome. You've been working a lot. Sure. Uh, and you're about to go work some more. You're going to start. <laughs> Can you believe in, it? I know. I recognize that that's <laughs> what uh, adulthood is, but <laughs> the nature of your work is such that it will uh, it will often take you take you away from me mm-hmm. uh, out of town. And that is what's uh, going to be happening in November, December. You're going to be out of Los Angeles for about two full months. That's about right, yes. Listener, don't worry, though, because we're going to be recording a bunch of minisodes. We'll be recording a full episode next week that we'll be posting in November. So you'll get your Josh fix. They'll be here. They'll be waiting for you. Absolutely. The, the, the episodes, the minisodes. Will. Right. Okay. Yeah, I, I guess so. They'll just be sitting around like... 
listen to I'm not posting them all at once. And yeah, then, but once they go up. Yes, that's true. They'll, they'll there. just be there. Um, so let's hope that, because uh, we've got a couple of them banked already. We're recording a couple minisodes today and then a couple next week. Like, we're going to be fully covered. Let's really hope that nothing happens to Josh while he's away. Because don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not going to re-record anything. I'm going to post them anyway. Mm-hmm. And then it's just going to be very morbid Yeah, to hear you talk about, you know, Patton or something. <laughs> so, um, anyway, uh, so don't worry, everybody. If you if you if you're excited to hear Josh, as I have to assume you are, uh, you'll ha- you'll hear more of him. <laughs> you'll hear more of him once he's out of town. <laughs> in this last month, when he's been in town, that's which is which is crazy. Yeah, but uh, but as we know, um, Halloween times is a scary time for you. It sure is. Um, you're, you're shaking right now. Staying inside mostly. Oh man. But then, oh, but then all Hallows Eve. Yeah. It doesn't matter that you're inside. People come to you. They'll come to get you. You never know when there's going to be ghouls about. (laughs) That's why I can't go out in the streets. You of course, having not seen a horror movie since 1953, (laughs) I'd say, oh, you never know when the ghouls are are out and about. Um, but yeah, so, uh, and one good thing about, um, expanding my, uh, host pool as i like to call it although it sounds kind of creepy and somehow genetic when you look at it like that um is that uh it enables me to wa- to talk about some more intense movies on here because mm-hmm. there's no way you were watching the babadook no. there's no way you were watching Ni- the nightmare nope it follows i think you still could i definitely think you could be okay with that one i might go see it i almost saw that in the theaters and then i didn't it's a good story. It's quite a story. <laughs> <laughs> um, what a story, Mark. We still. <laughs> oh my! Uh, next week, I don't think I've officially settled on what we're going to talk about. I think it's going to be the visit, uh, okay. the M Night Shyamalan film. I think it'll be Reed and I talking about the visit. Okay. Uh, but I don't know if we've ever, if we've ever, uh, if he and I ever confirmed that. So um, next week is going to have to be a. Uh, a delightful surprise everybody i try to let people know in advance so that they can go and see the movie mm-hmm. uh especially that one which is i believe still in theaters so go see it anyway because i enjoy it you can read my review at i think battleship pretension.com i think that's who i wrote it for um but yeah so enough about that we've been uh, this has been pure introduction so far um and for and for certain people i should say i do have a third co-host his name is josh long he is here right now (laughs) it is that strange voice that isn't mine that you're hearing yeah so anyway all right to think that there's there are listeners out there who are like who is this other person they just started three weeks ago and they they're used to just hearing you and any kind of other voice well you or reed and robert and any other kind of voice they're just baffled or jeff newberg who uh that's true who filled in for all three of you at the last (laughs) minute um, which is weird. It's a weird thing that that kind of feels like. Yeah. As, as long as there's somebody around. Yeah. And there's always somebody, you yeah. know, you can find someone. There was a time when I did this show alone. Yeah. That's weird. I know. It's weird to think about. The episodes were a lot shorter. I'll say that. <laughs> that's true. Um, but, uh, but that's not what this episode's going to be. Actually, actually it probably will be because we will, we will, we're going to be talking about uh, Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby. And as, uh, as we do from time to time when we talk about an older film, uh, there's no companion film for this. We're just mm-hmm. going to be uh, really digging into this film. That's kind of in the whole Halloween times thing, right? It's just only ever one. Or have you done companion pieces for any of the other ones so far? Uh, no, no, no. We've done companion films for all of them. Oh, really? But not yeah. for this one? It follows. The companion film was The Ring. 
the Nightmare. No way. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street was a companion film for The Nightmare. I haven't seen that. Um, I think you'd be okay with that one, but it's hard to say. At the very least, just because I think Freddy Krueger has... That first one is scarier than most, but I think Freddy Krueger's Krueger's become such a pop culture image that it wouldn't be frightening to you. I don't know. And he's kind of like... He's kind of campy in a way. Not in that first one. Oh, really? And there's a little bit, but he became that more as the series went on. That first one, he's not quipping a lot. He's not, but he still does, right? A little bit. I feel feel like... He's more just content to just kill people. All right. In that first one. But, um... And then, let's see, what was a companion film for The Babadook? Uh, Forbidden Planet. Oh, I've seen that one. That's a good one. Yeah. Listeners, don't forget. Go see Forbidden Planet. It's delightful. Don't forget. Um, Never forget. Never forget. There's a few things in um, the U.S. you need to never forget. One is December 7th, one is September 11th, and the other is Forbidden Planet. Well, there's the Alamo, too. Oh, right. No, that one you just have to remember. Oh, but you can forget that. You can forget it, just remember it as well. (laughs) So, um... So, okay, Rosemary's Baby, a film that I saw in college for the first time. For the life of me, I don't remember what class I saw it in. Hmm. Um, Because as I go through my little mental Rolodex, I can't think of what class it would fit into. Hmm. It wasn't a sci-fi film. It um, It wasn't a road movie. And I don't think it fit into my German expressionist class. I wouldn't think so. So I'm trying to think what what it fit into. It maybe it was uh, one of my general aesthetics classes. I don't know, but for life Could me, be. I can't recall. Um, but I saw it then, and it made Cassavetti's class maybe. <laughs> oddly enough, no. <laughs> um, but uh, but it, it was right around the same time that I took that class, mm-hmm. and I remember thinking like, oh yeah, this is how I made the money to make those movies that I saw. <laughs> um, that and. Uh, the Dirty Dozen, for which he was nominated mm-hmm. for an Oscar uh, for Supporting Actor, which is odd. So, it really made an impression on me. It's a movie that I've liked ever since. Uh, I saw it for the second time this past week. And as tends to happen with, as tends to happen, I think, with horror movies, even if I haven't seen them in, in over 10 years, they they are they're often full of such strong imagery and such strong concepts my memory for them is pretty good hmm. and uh, and i remembered most of uh rosemary's baby uh specific lines specific line readings and uh musical choices although the the score has a lot more jazz than i remembered um so i and and i was excited as we as i watched it again uh as we went scene by scene i was excited to talk about it and i was excited to be watching it again and i was excited retroactively that i own it on blu-ray um mm. i didn't watch it on blu-ray because i kind of <laughs> had it on while i was working um but yeah it's it's a film that i feel like i would return to pretty frequently uh because it is immensely watchable on top mm. of everything else you don't often think of psychological horror as re as watchable as um uh as rosemary's baby is but it really is especially it's two hours and 15 minutes and it really? flies. I don't remember that it's that long. Yeah. If you'd asked me, that's something I didn't remember. If you'd asked me, hey, how long is Rosemary's Baby? I would have said like, ah, 95 minutes probably. Yeah. No, it's well over two hours and it goes, I think it goes by really fast. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's one of those films that uh, is very taut. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, I, that's a thing I can't say without thinking of adaptation when mm-hmm. um, the characters are describing their screenplays of, where... 
I think one of the characters says, oh, mom read my screenplay. She said it was very taut. <laughs> um, so anyway, so we'll delve more into it uh, in a moment. But first, uh, what is your association with Rosemary's Baby? When did you first see it? When's the last time you saw it? I want to know. The listeners want to know, Josh. Well, I saw it. I've only seen it once, but I saw it for the first time last year. Oh, okay. So I hadn't seen it before that. And part of it was because I was, you know, because it was a horror movie. But the more I heard about it, I was like, eh, I can probably handle this one. Yeah. And like you said, it's more of like psychological horror and it's more just kind of weird than it is. Uh, I feel like yeah. it's, it's more in line with the wicker man than it is that, that type of horror. Yeah. I can see that where it's more of a sense of creeping dread and paranoia right. than anything else. Like something weird's going on. Yeah. Um, Although I, I think it, I think it holds its cards to its chest better than the Wicker Man does because I feel like oh, the sure. Wicker Man is like, "Hey, look at this weird place you're in," and he, it feels like after about ten minutes of that movie, he should be like, "You know what? I'm getting out of here." Yeah. Um, or just like, look, I'm going to stand in the middle of the town square and just spin around and start shooting my weapon, <laughs> and chances are I'll hit somebody that deserves to die. Yeah. That's what I want to see. That's what I want to see. Why aren't there more horror, horror movies movie movie like that? Where just the main character within 10 minutes is like, all right, I think I got it. Uh, I'm just going to start killing just people. kill everybody in this town. Just the Punisher goes into a horror movie. <laughs> and it's like, all right, I don't have the patience for this. <laughs> Time to pull out my rocket launcher. There's, gonna, there's a lot of parkour in horror movies, right? Yeah, um, there could be. As always, we are referencing Punisher Warzone. Yes. Which is a delightful film. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, I was interrupting you. Go ahead. Um... No, but yeah, I I, uh, I enjoyed I enjoyed it a lot. I am trying to think if I've seen a lot of other Roman Polanski films. I've seen several, at least three come to mind. But I've seen I think six, but I'm not a hundred. Okay, let's see. I have not seen Repulsion. I've seen, seen uh, okay, so Rosemary's Baby, uh, The Tenant. Haven't seen that. I saw. Well, years ago, I saw Roman Polanski's Pirates, but I was so young that I don't remember anything about it. Yeah, I, don't, I, don't um, that one. I saw The Ninth Gate. I haven't seen that. I saw Oliver Twist. I saw oh, the I saw that. I saw The Pianist. I saw that. So that's six. I think those are the six I've seen. So there's a big stretch in the 80s uh, and 90s where I didn't see anything. And I don't know. And, and maybe there's something that I'm missing. Chinatown. Oh, Chinatown. Yeah. Oh, what am I thinking about? Okay, so that's seven. I've seen seven. Um, I've seen enough that I can definitely pick up on uh, major themes that he is fascinated with. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then Knife in the Water I've also seen. Oh, okay. And then uh, I feel like there was a newer one that I'm thinking of maybe. He did one called um, The Ghost Writer. Is that it? Oh, I think writer, not writer with the flaming skull. Yeah. Something like that. I didn't see that one either, but okay. I heard that one was okay. But I also know that they finished it theoretically according to his wishes, but I think it was one of those situations where he had to hightail it out of the country. Yeah. And, uh, so during the post-production and so I think they had to finish it, not a hundred and, and mm -hmm. people have said that it's good, but it doesn't, you can tell it's, it's not completely him as far as pacing and sure, stuff, sure. which uh, I could see. Yeah. Um, and I guess do we even, uh, this didn't occur to me until just now. Do we need to bother talking about why, why we watch Roman Polanski films? There's plenty. I, we've, we've addressed this before the separating art from the artist, but that was a while ago. Yeah. We talked about that with Woody Allen at some point, right? Woody Allen and Roman Polanski and others. Um, yeah. Yeah. But uh, he's somebody that uh, 
people will regularly talk about as, you know, once he did what he did, which is uh, have sex with a 13-year-old girl, um, and theoretically coerced her, maybe put something in her drink, although as a grown-up she said that, no, it's a thing I wanted to do, but I was just young. Yeah. So there's arguments being made, and then he was found guilty of statutory rape and fled the country, and I believe has never been in the U.S. since. Yes, he's in, like, probably France or something. I, yeah. I feel like... He bounces around. Yeah. Um, um, but, yeah, I mean, so there is that... I feel like that element is a little bit behind any uh, any film that he makes. And, like, he's one that, that... That seems a lot worse to me than some of the other ones. Like, the Woody Allen stuff is weird, but it's not... Uh, there's never really anything illegal in all of that that's that's ever been substantiated right right um so it's kind of like there might be some weird things but there might it's uncomfortable but it's not necessarily that criminal whereas the the roman Polanski thing is pretty bad well and there's and i think a, a thing that you and i mentioned at the time was this idea of when you go to see his movies you're monetarily propping him up Mm. um and the more you do that maybe the easier it is for him to continue to elude justice yeah you know what i mean and that's tough that's a tough thing to think about and the film lover in me is at is at war at times with the uh christian and also decent person (laughs) um yeah and don't get me wrong like it's one thing i learned from chinatown is that in the right circumstances people are capable of anything noted terrible villain noah cross says that (laughs) um but yeah uh he is a a filmmaker it's tough it's so tough because he has made some of the best movies ever and ultimately the thing that do do we even need to ask this question but it's a question you can't help but ask that like if he went to prison when he was found guilty that's a lot of movies that don't exist anymore yeah. now obviously so which do you choose mm-hmm. and that's tough <laughs> and and i think ultimately i come down on it's like well it's not about choosing it's if the choice was was right now um then i think i'd probably choose justice but as it is you can't go back and rewrite things. So this is just how it is. Mm-hmm. This guy made some movies that are amazing. That does not exonerate him. That does not make what he did. Okay. Uh, okay. Including, uh, you know, fleeing the country. And, and even if he made movies while he was doing that, that doesn't make it okay. Yeah. So, but anyway, uh, I wasn't expecting to go into that uh, discussion, but I feel like you never know if somebody feels like it needs to happen. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this is, so one thing, so from now on, we're going to be talking about Roman Polanski as a filmmaker, the choices he makes, though I will for myself, I will be bringing a great deal of his personal life and personal experiences into it because I think that his experiences when he was younger and in the 1960s absolutely shaped the stories he chooses to tell. Yeah. He choose he tells stories of paranoia and isolation and, but not merely paranoia. It seems like paranoia, but then it turns out there actually is a bunch people of people. Really are out together. Yeah. And given his, his, his family history, which was, you know, he, he lost, I don't remember if it was his entire family in the Holocaust, but he lost a lot of them. Mm-hmm. 
And then he lost his wife to the Manson family. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at that, and you, certainly the, pan, the pianist makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Rosemary's Baby, Chinatown, The Ninth Gate, even Oliver Twist yeah. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, and that's, and those are the ones, oh, and The Tenant, absolutely The Tenant, which he stars in, by the way. Um, oh, I haven't seen that one. It's really good. One. Yeah. It's really good. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think... You know, if you want to think in terms of the auteur theory and the idea that filmmakers will return to their scripts, uh, re- sorry, return to their uh, films with the same themes and, and approaching things for, with the same style, I think to me, Polanski and Wells and I feel like somebody like Bergman and Woody Allen, you know, mm. uh, I think they're good arguments for that. If you want to think purely in terms of style, I feel like obviously a Wes Anderson or Martin Scorsese or whatever. Mm. But when it comes to same themes over and over again, I feel like there are a few that I that are a really good argument for that. And Polanski for me is is usually number one, honestly. <laughs> so okay, that was a bit of a tangent. Sorry about that. Uh, Rosemary's Baby for those that haven't seen it, and it is available on Netflix right now. I recommend going and watching it and not listening to us yet. Welcome back. Uh, so, it is about a young couple in New York, played by John Cassavetes and Mia Farrow, speaking of Woody Allen, mm. and people wronged. Um, uh, oh, by the way, there also is a really wonderful documentary called The Kid Stays in the Picture about Robert Evans, who is the producer oh, yeah. of Rosemary's Baby, mm-hmm. and, uh, and Chinatown, and The Godfather. He produced some pretty great movies, yeah. and uh, it's about his life, and it's a very, very good movie. But anyway... Um, so this young couple moves to this, uh, very nice lush apartment in New York and quickly make friends with the neighbors. And then they decide they want to try and have a baby and they, so they get pregnant and the wife, Rosemary is feeling pain. She's feeling uncomfortable and the interest that other people are taking in her pregnancy and in her in general uh, is off-putting, uh, to yeah. say the least. It's, to and it's the nature of the interest, not just the fact yeah. of the interest. It's the way people talking about it, especially people who shouldn't be as close to her as like her neighbors presume to be. Yeah, um, especially because the neighbors are the neighbors and their friends are all in their mid to late seventies and they take an interest. And so suddenly this, you know, 30 something couple is hanging out with people 40 years older than they are Mm -hmm. on a regular basis. And she certainly, she, she comes to realize that, Oh, the doctor that she is seeing was recommended by them. And everybody that she is, that she was friends with previously is being sort of systematically removed from her life. And, so she's feeling more and more isolated, even from her husband, mm-hmm. who seems to be very on board with the the yeah. course that their life is taking. It seems a little bit like he's kind of gaslighting her, you know, where he's like, yeah. no, everything's fine. Everything's what are you talking about? Fine. Um, but it's John Cassavetes, who, much as I love his films, is an inherently unlikable on-screen presence. <laughs> but that's me. Maybe I'm wrong. What do you think? Um, I can see that. I don't. I don't feel like... He comes off as trustworthy or like, yeah, uh, amiable. Yeah, even before anything happens. But I guess he can't, given what happens and the role that he has played in it. 
that means that he has to have always been somebody that was going to do that. Yeah. You know? And so, uh, so yeah, and I guess we, we can go ahead and talk about the, uh, the whole story. Uh, spoilers. There's some big spoilers here, everybody. <laughs> so she's basically impregnated by Satan and she's carrying the antichrist. There you go. So there you go. Um, surprise. Yay. But, and then her neighbors, who seem like, if nothing else, just kind of these quirky, obnoxious old people, old New York people. Yeah. Uh, it turns out that they're all part of a, a witch's coven mm-hmm. and that they uh, singled her out for the pregnancy. And then her husband basically sells her out so that he can have professional success. Which seems like such kind of uh, pulpy horror subject matter oh, sure. on the surface. Um, but because it deals so much with all of that stuff's happening behind the scenes yeah, and kind of gets revealed in a, in a pretty, uh, pretty reasonable way, uh, throughout the movie, especially at the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, but because all that's happening in the background, you're just kind of seeing the effects. You're not seeing, right. You're not just, it's not just putting the, putting it all out on the screen right from the beginning. And an argument can definitely be made for, it's just nerves. It's, yeah. hey, you're in a new place. You're pregnant. Yeah. The pregnancy doesn't seem to be going that well. There's new people in your life. You know, and if you're in the right or one could say wrong uh, frame of mind, you connect all those dots and see, oh, people are have singled me out. And, and I'm sure she didn't think she was carrying the Antichrist. But um, <laughs> well, but like they're, they they want my baby. That was the thing that she comes to is she they want my baby. Mm-hmm. Um, now, she has no idea what the baby is. But um, and I it's so the film uh, won an Oscar and was nominated for one. It was not nominated for Best Actress. And that surprises me. Because I think Mia Farrow is great in the movie. She does a good. She does give a good performance. Because she has to seem very frail and weak in every possible way. Not merely physically weak, but she has to seem like she is defenseless, almost like a kid at times who needs who is often spoken to like a child. Mm. Um, I forget how old this movie is too, which means that she was pretty young at the time. She was, yeah, she was very young and she looks young. So she's probably, uh, so Cassavetti is probably in his thirties. She might be in her twenties. Yes. Um, but she also has to find a certain degree of strength, whatever strength is in the character. And, that la- that qualification there at the end that I just made, I think, is what I like so much about her performance, which is when her character realizes what's happening, or at least realizes that something is happening, and she feels somewhat emboldened. Um, she st- Mia Farrow still plays the char- plays that within the nature of the character. She doesn't play her as like you know Ripley from Aliens or mm-hmm. something like that. She plays her as. Well, this person who's inherently weak, this is what it would look like if she was suddenly, if she felt strong or felt bold or felt brave. Um, and so it's a, it's a very consistent character. There's a nice arc uh, to her. And the film does such a solid job of putting us in her mindset so that we can, but then also pulling us out from time to time so that we can look at how she's acting and think, yeah, maybe she is just going crazy. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, that's not easy either. Um, 
So yeah, yeah uh, her performance really, I think there's all the performances are great, but hers is the one that obviously should carry the film and it does. Mm. So, um, we can talk about some others in, in a moment, but just from a filmmaking standpoint, um, what, what jumped out? So you saw it for the first time recently, like in the last year. Yes. Last sometime last year. Okay. Uh, was there anything that jumped out to you specifically about the way plant, the choices that Polanski made or, um, is it just kind of the general Polanski thing? Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of his thing, but I feel like he he works well with that tone of dread in this that you don't see as much in the other ones. I think it's I think it is in some of his other films, but um, I feel like he it, it's amped up here, but not too much. Uh, there's yeah, I, I think I enjoy movies sometimes where you have that sense that something is wrong, but you don't know what is wrong yeah. and you can't explain what's wrong. Um, and I think there's something. Uh, kind of eerie about that where I think the sort of the inability to convince anyone or to explain exactly what's wrong yeah, um, and how that lends itself to a paranoia and how those two things kind of can uh, build on each other. Um, that's, that's one of the things that I think is working best about this, about the movie. There's a heightened quality to the world that Polanski creates in the film but it's not too heightened, too heightened. Mm-hmm. And you know that something's wrong, right? Not heightened enough. And you think she's just being paranoid. It needs right. to be just like, it's just this tightrope that he it's walks. A, it's a fine line where you, you know, like the night, the neighbors, you, you feel like there's something weird about them, but it could just be that they're eccentric, you know? Absolutely. And Absolutely. It's, it's hard to go. It's hard to land one way or the other on that until, you know, the end of the film. But, and I think that actually explains the Academy Award win for Ruth Gordon as Maybe her so. neighbor. Yeah. And, uh, uh, what's the name? Uh, Sydney Blackmer as, uh, Roman cat. There's many cast of it and Roman cast of it. They are her neighbors and, uh, they're both very good, but Ruth Gordon is now, I should say, I've never seen Harold and Maude. I've heard I would like it. I have also heard I would hate it. Um, I don't know where I would fall on that film based on, and I know I have a general sense of what it is, but uh, I don't know. What are your thoughts on Harold Maude? Sure. I like it. Do you think I would like it? I'm not sure. Yeah. I guess I got to see it. You might. I think there's definitely parts of it that you'll like. I Mm -hmm. think there's some, uh, I think there's some, some good morbid humor in there. Oh, good. I like that. Um, but you might not like sort of where it goes. And, mm. and there is a little bit of a, a uh, uh, maybe anti-establishment or uh, sort of contrarian element throughout it that might rub you the wrong way. It, that doesn't bother me that much. But if it's like... It doesn't always, if it's but a, sometimes. It, sometimes, especially if there's a self-satisfied quality to it. Yeah. That, uh, and I do know that there's a self a self satisfied quality to a lot of people that love Harold and Maude, mm-hmm. but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the film's fault. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, Ruth Gordon is I think first and foremost known for that, even though she'd been around for you know decades. Yeah. Um, but she did win her Oscar for this, mm-hmm. and she's really amazing because a lot of the tone that I'm talking about comes in the performances and hers really leads the way in that she's over the top, but in a way that makes that you, you really feel like you could know this person. Oh yeah. She seems totally believable. Yeah. And she's so sweet too for pretty much the whole movie. Right. Yeah. But sweet. She's aggressively sweet. Like she, 
Because that's the thing. The nature of this witch's coven, which is a weird thing to say, <laughs> uh, a weird, weird way to start a sentence. <laughs> the thing about this witch's coven is they need to intrude. They need to invade her life and take it over. But if you do that, she'll know. Mm-hmm. She'll see that something's happening. Which is why you lead the army with somebody who is intrusive, but could also just be seen as nosy. Yeah. Just and, a, just an old busybody. Right. And you would assume is non-threatening. And it's, yeah, it's just, it's like, oh, she's always asking about my life. She always invites herself in, but, it, you know, she's a little obnoxious, but in the end, she's harmless. Mm-hmm. It's such a, and I don't know, I haven't read the book by Ira Levin. Um, it sounds like a lot of the stuff is is taken from the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just, but I have to assume that that is not, that even if he wrote the character with that kind of thing in mind, it's such a balancing act on the part of the actress and there's little moments where she'll just throw stuff. She'll be big and, and boisterous, but then she'll just throw thing, throw lines away. Mm-hmm. Just these little, they seem passive aggressive. And when you ultimately know who Minnie Castavet is, those moments you go back and watch and those moments are loaded with meaning. Yeah. It's just, man, I can't. And she's, she's written very well. Like there's a, a, a moment when, um, she brings over some desserts that she made and she's like, well, I have some left over. Here you go. And so, uh, so Rosemary and guy, um, eat the desserts and Rosemary is like, eh, I don't think this is, this isn't really that good. Well, it turns out that there's something in it that's going to put her to sleep basically. Um, and so when she brings the dish over the next day, um, Minnie says, it's like, did you like it? I thought it, maybe I put too much of blanket. Like she's, so she's written in a way it's like, I'm addressing the weird taste you tasted, Mm -hmm. even though it's too, it doesn't matter. It's too late now, but it's just about, I need to put you at ease. I got what I got, what I needed, but Mm -hmm. I also need to manage you. And it's just, and the way she plays it is so sympathetic. Like, Oh, I think I didn't do a good job. Mm -hmm. I'm so sorry. (laughs) It's, I cannot speak highly enough of that wonderful performance and it's not a performance you would ever think would be in a horror film it's yeah. like something out of a neil simon play yeah um but yeah and uh so other per- other performances uh, i guess we haven't talked much about john cassavetes um as an actor there is a i said he's unlikable it's not so much that as it is he doesn't put me at ease so even when the character is trying to put her at ease um yeah it doesn't really work yeah there's just something edgy about him i mean you can see it in the films that he makes like there's just an element to him a very he's very present very in the moment and there's just a an almost almost manic energy to him i don't know it's hard to say Hmm. but uh i think it works for the film i don't think he was miscast or anything like that um and (laughs) but the character is like a kind of a negative person um and very narcissistic because of course he's an actor mm. and uh <laughs> and after so i as i rewatched the film i uh i tweeted that like hey i'm rewatching rosemary's baby and the theme that we'll be exploring on this week's episode is never marry an actor <laughs> because they'll stop at nothing um but uh and then i guess a few other uh performances that are worth 
noting uh, Maurice Evans is in the film uh, and very much a supporting role, but it's nice to see him. Ralph Bellamy. I like him. <laughs> Do you know who that is? Um, it's one of those names that I know and I probably would recognize him if I saw him. I don't remember who he is. I think I first recognized him from he's in Trading Places. Okay. But he was also in The Wolfman. Is and he one of the the older guys in Trading Places? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's him and uh, Don Amici, I believe. Okay. And, um, and yeah, so it's just like, he's been around forever. Yeah. And, but uh, you know, it's especially like some of his more notable roles were in the 1940s. Same with Elisha Cook, by the way, Elisha Cook is, he's in the, uh, first, he's the guy who shows in the apartment. Well, Elisha Cook was in the Maltese Falcon. Like he was, uh, Oh, he's the, the uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The gun kid. I can't remember his name. Wilmer, Wilmer, Wilmer Cook. Yeah. His name is Elisha Cook, so it's Wilmer Cook. Obviously, it's like how he got the part. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so he's been in a bunch of stuff. And so it's just, it's interesting to see all these older actors. And obviously, Ralph, Ralph Bellamy would be around a fair amount longer. Yeah. Uh, who's, you know, he made training, trading places in the mid 80s, I think. Um, but yeah, uh, and I find myself wondering if maybe they were cast, not merely because they're older, but because we do have an association with them and maybe they'll put us at ease. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Could be like, there's something about, you would never think that a, that a dangerous coven would consist of 19, uh, of, uh, late seventies or upper seventies character actors, character (laughs) actors. And that they'd be like, "Mm, they're not very, I wouldn't look at Ruth Gordon or Ralph Bellamy and say like, I'm so threatened right now. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and I think that's the brilliance of, of the way they're written and the way they're played and the Mm -hmm. casting choices. Yeah. Um, so, so before we move on to any, uh, discussion of, of theme or anything like that, I'm trying to think if there's anything, anything that we haven't really talked about. Um, I did talk, I did mention that the film moves, uh, that it's over two hours, but it moves re- really quickly. And I think that has to do with, uh, obviously it has to do with pacing, but it has to do with Polanski's way of pacing. I mean, mm-hmm. Chinatown is also, I believe, over two hours. Yeah. And that also moves really fast. Mm-hmm. Well, that um, one too, Chinatown has a lot happening in it. I feel like there's a lot right. more plot points. I don't feel like there's a whole lot happening in Rosemary's Baby, but... It's all building. There's always right. each new scene is building on something else, and uh, yeah, it's. I think it all is kind of building to that ending. Yeah, and I get the two actually do seem surprisingly kind of of a piece, which is mm-hmm. you don't, as uh, Noah Cross also says in Chinatown, you may think you know what's going on here, but believe me, you don't. Yeah, that can absolutely be said <laughs> to Rosemary's character. Yeah, where. In both cases, these these characters who the world is against them, they think they have allies, but it turns out the allies aren't actually with them. Right. They're betrayed, they're lied to, and they are completely on their own. Uh, where they're trying to gather information, they're trying to get the whole picture, and then when they finally do get the whole picture, it is infinitely worse than they thought it was. Yeah. Um, and I feel like, so the two work ver- work hand in hand, and from a pacing standpoint, I think a lot of it has to do with just something that I've come to appreciate more and more as I've gotten older is knowing exactly how long a scene needs to be Mm -hmm. not overstaying. It's welcome. Just you get in, 
you you establish something. You're yeah. establishing threat. You're establishing tone. You're establishing setting or character, whatever it is. And once it is established, you keep moving. If you're going to make a thriller of any kind, you need to do that. If you want to make a drama, you can maybe kind of languish in those scenes a little bit longer. But if you're going to make a thriller, you got to just keep giving us information even when we don't even if it doesn't register immediately that you're giving us information but even if it's just it's just like oh i feel a little bit uncomfortable mm-hmm. that's information that it, the information is you need to feel uncomfortable yeah. you should feel uneasy um i guess i should one thing that i should address speaking of uh you know talking about getting in getting out and and having everything be kind of necessary there are a couple of dream sequences in Rosemary's Baby, one of them involving John F. Kennedy. Uh, and it's just, but it's such a neat, such an odd thing where Rosemary, but it, it feels like a dream hmm. because she's on a boat uh, that JFK is steering, but they're, but they're about to leave the dock and their friend Hutch is standing on the dock and he wants to come along and she's like, can't Hutch come? And, and he's like, sorry, Catholics only. That's my terrible JFK. Um, and so uh, it's just such a, it's, it's such a weird inclusion, but I think it helps to just feel unsettled. And that does speak to one other thing that I would like to get your take on because I don't know much about it and, I, and you don't either, but... <laughs> And listeners, I apologize if this is offensive to you. This is simply something that I've heard and something I would not have gotten on my own. So this is something I've heard from other people. Hmm. Uh, that the film is infused with a lot of Catholic guilt. Hmm. And there is a lot of talk about Catholicism in the mm-hmm. film. Um, and I was not raised Catholic. Neither were you. Hmm. Our wives were. Mm-hmm. But I don't think Jen has seen Rosemary's Baby. And also, Jen is not really the type that that locks into concepts of guilt uh, in a film or anything like that. And the idea of Catholic guilt is something I don't think she uh, w- really latched on to. I don't know. You know, Rosemary's only a few letters away from Rosary. What? And Mary is in there. Oh. Think about that. See, we picked up on some Catholic stuff. Um <laughs> And yeah, and so, and the idea of Catholic guilt, you know, so when I read that, and by the way, I read it in a few places. Mm-hmm. So this is definitely a thing that people, that registers with people, uh, I would say specifically people that were that were raised in the Catholic church. And I'm trying to think of like what she might feel guilty about. Yeah. And maybe it's the idea that she's, the, the idea that she feels any negativity towards her pregnancy, mm-hmm. even though she wants to have the baby. Yeah. But when it, when it hurts and she's getting frustrated and then she's just basically any negativity associated with the, the wonders of motherhood. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It's maybe it's that, I don't know. Uh, I, I would like mm-hmm. to read up on it, but at the same time so that I could like report on what people think, but their yeah. opinion certainly did not originate with me. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about what it could possibly be? I'm not sure. Actually, that's, that's interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. Cause I, yeah. I can see how, I don't know. I mean, the, there's the element of her creating something that's evil. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's not at fault for that. 
Um, but maybe that's part of it. Maybe the idea of of uh, doing things that I don't know of something that a society or some kind of element of society sees as wrong, but you don't have any control over it. Yeah, uh, I can see some people who are trying to reject the idea of Catholic guilt no. going that route. At the same time, um, I mean Polanski's not catholic right i is, is he jewish I, I know his i believe so yeah okay I, I, and uh honestly the name ira levin doesn't smack of catholicism yeah right so that would be interesting if like both the writer and director are at least up from jewish backgrounds it would yeah. be interesting if there was the element of catholic guilt there well there's definitely in in both cultures you hear a lot about catholic guilt but you also hear a lot about jewish guilt. true true um and may, you know now that i think about it maybe it's this idea that um that she doesn't trust herself mm-hmm. that, you know, in standard, in, in, in almost any horror movie, the audience looks at what people are doing on the screen and there's the element of don't go in there or yeah. don't you realize what's going on? Yeah. And this could be an element where you watch it and you see how people are acting. You see things closing in and you, the, the viewer think like, you need to talk to somebody mm-hmm. with authority. You need yeah. to tell your friends what's going on. Um, and she thinks of doing that, but then dismisses it mm-hmm. because she can't trust herself and probably even condemns herself a little bit for even thinking that her husband would be, would have something nefarious yeah. in mind. It could be that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, but yeah, rather than a commentary on it, more just a depiction of the effect that it has on her in a bad, and the idea of staying in a bad situation just because that's what's expected of you. And I think, I think that idea can sort of go hand in hand with paranoia because in both situations, uh, people are telling you that you're wrong about something. Sure. Um, with the guilt, you know, it's like you've, you've made a mistake and, and you're the problem here. Yeah. And with the paranoia, it's, it's, kind of the same thing like you think there's something wrong but there's not actually anything wrong again you're the problem here yeah so uh listeners uh, if you have any theories about this i would certainly love to hear it um like i said i i know what i've read elsewhere but if there's anybody here who i say here it's just me and josh here in the room, room. um but if there's anybody listening that uh feels like y- that that is a thing that you absolutely got out of the film when you saw it i'd love to hear your your perspective so you uh, you can email me tyler at more than one lesson.com or you can comment uh, on the website. So thematically uh, just to kind of maybe not so much wrap up, but kind of delve into a few things here and there. Um, one thing that really sticks out is the idea of not even so much opportunism, but if you want to get to the idea of idols, um, which is the thing that we've talked about a lot, which is, ulti- you know, the thing that you feel will ultimately provide you with happiness. Mm-hmm. And if I just had that thing, if I just, you know, if I worship that thing, then I will be happy. Um, now, she doesn't really have an idol at the beginning. Her baby becomes one mm-hmm. to the extent that when it ends and she is faced with raising the Antichrist, she says, okay, I'll do it because her baby antichrist or not has mm-hmm. become an, an idol in her life yeah um but th- she doesn't start out like 
idolizing motherhood above all else. No. Um, she's with her husband and she wants good things for him. And yeah, I guess we could be parents. What, why not? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so we're actually seeing the development in her. We're seeing a development of an idol. Quite literally, it's developing inside mm-hmm. of her. Uh, with him, it's a little bit different. He is a struggling actor who, uh, I mean, he really sets things in motion or rather he, the, the cast of it's, talk to him very briefly about witchcraft and if you just let us use your wife as an incubator for the antichrist (laughs) and i don't know if maybe they i don't know how much detail they went into but um if you just let us do that then we can arrange it so that you will be wildly successful Hmm. and he apparently said yes and from that moment on, his behavior changes and he's constantly working against her as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so there's this uh, common theme of, there's a, a line that is said twice. And the line is, do they know what's causing it? Now that applies to two things. One is Guy, uh, John Cassavetti's character, he goes in for an audition for a play and he's auditioning for a part that he says, like, even the, he goes, the play isn't that good, but that's the kind of part that gets noticed. And he loses it to this guy, this other guy, and um, I got to stop saying guy because the person's <laughs> name. Um, he loses it to another actor. And then he goes to see the ca- uh, cast of Etz, And not long after, he gets a phone call that that other actor has gone blind. And so he's so he's on the phone and you hear him say, do they know what's causing it? And he doesn't immediately know what has happened, only that things have gone his way. Hmm. Uh, later on, when Hutch, their their old friend, uh, a wise old man played by uh, Maurice Evans, so and he's British, so you know he's smart. <laughs> um, he starts asking questions, and the cat and he comes over, and the cast of Etz, they actually meet him, or at least one of them does, and and then a gl- his glove goes missing. And not long after, he slips into a coma. And when uh, Rosemary finds out, she says, do they know what's causing it? And so the fact that both of them ask that obviously links these two things together. And the thing that's causing it is this is this coven of witches. Um, mm-hmm. And this idea of choosing, in the case of, of Guy, without even really understanding what it is that he has chosen, um, it's choosing your own goals and choosing your own idols above not merely above god which is easy to do because you can't physically visually see god so you're not seeing what you're putting aside but often other people in his case other people and idols can absolutely be other people but in his case it's professional success above all else yeah and it does (laughs) All right. Uh, apologies to any actors out there. Uh oh. It does seem like the he has the perfect career for that. Mm-hmm. Not to imply that actors are selfish, but like, there's no guarantee that if you work hard for a number of years, you will be successful. Yeah. Like, there's no guarantee at all. You can be the most skilled actor in the world, and if you don't get the right opportunities, it'll never happen for you. Mm-hmm. So there's a certain degree even in in the more talented or successful actors, there's still a certain degree of desperation. Mm-hmm. You know, even if you have won an Oscar as a younger actor, 
as you get older, the parts change and maybe you're not sought sought after anymore. Like there's always that element of having to, you know, you're always auditioning yeah, and, and you might get turned down quite a bit. And so I, I like that. I like the choice to make him an actor. And so again, I apologize if there's any actors listening. I'm not saying that it's inherent, but I feel like it's a good choice. Yeah. Because what he's, his idol is not merely success. I think it's also stability and Mm -hmm. knowing, and rather than not knowing what's going to happen, it's now I know for sure I'm going to get this part. I'm going to get that part. I'm going to get what I want. I know it for sure. Thank God, or in this case, the exact opposite. <laughs> um, so that that's the thing that really uh, struck me. And there's a there's a line once uh, once guy is uh, once it's been revealed what Rosemary's baby is. Uh, guy walks in and you know leans down and he says, "They promised me you wouldn't be hurt, and you haven't been really." I mean, suppose you had the baby and you lost it. Wouldn't that be the same? And we're getting so much in return. It's just such a... It's so insidious. Yeah. Um, but one thing that I find very interesting... So if we want to go with this idea of of idols and just getting what we want, and let's let's explore this idea of not getting what we want and how often we can get angry with God about that. You know, and what we want could be, I mean, we certainly think that it's good. It could be career Mm -hmm. success. It could be uh, a spouse. Mm -hmm. It could be a child. Um, Who knows? Things that are kind of outside of our control. And I I do feel like, I don't know, let me me ask you this. Like, do you feel like any time, whether for yourself or do you think this about Christians in general, that there's this attitude that if something is out of my control, then that means it's absolutely in God's control. And that means if I don't get it, he's to blame. Mm-hmm. Like, is that a thing that you've ever found yourself thinking? Or do you, have you heard other people kind of take that attitude? Um, I feel like sometimes I've seen people, I don't feel like I see that a lot, but I, I mean, I think it happens. I think that yeah. can, that can be an attitude. Um, which I think comes from the right place of believing that God's in charge is in control of things, right. but uh, but kind of I, I think it's more common to harbor an anger against God when something right. doesn't go the way right. you want it to. Um, yeah, and I, and one thing that struck me that I certainly didn't remember from the first time I saw it, and knowing what we'd be talking about a little bit here it seemed like the most potent symbol of why God lets bad things happen or keeps us from getting the things we think we want (laughs) or, you know, our heart's deepest desire and all those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't mean to be flippant about it, but so throughout Rosemary's pregnancy, it hurts. Like she is in pain. She loses weight. And somebody mentions like, you know, when you're pregnant, you're supposed to gain weight, mm-hmm. not lose it. And you know, she's already pretty small, Mia Farrow. And yeah. so I wouldn't be surprised if she actually, maybe it was a makeup thing, but it looks like she has lost, she loses weight over the course of the film. And so, um, so she's in pain, she's losing weight. 
you know, the doctor that she's going to see who incidentally was recommended by the cast of vets, um, is saying like, it'll be fine. It'll go away in a few days. But he says that he's been saying that for months, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gets to the point where she just cannot take it anymore. And the first doctor that she went to is Dr. Hill played by Charles Grodin. And nobody, <laughs> there's nobody that is like the image of, of cold, <laughs> boring sanity than Charles Grodin. Um, but, uh, so she decides, you know what? I'm tired of this. I'm tired of seeing Dr. Saperstein. I'm going to go see Dr. Hill and her husband, John Cassavetti is trying to talk her out of it. Um, and he's, he's kind he's almost forbidding it. And she's saying, no, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna find out what's going on. And then in the blink of an eye, like it's in the same scene, like there's just a sudden stop and she starts smiling and he says, what's wrong? And she said, the pain, it's, it went away. It's gone. And she's just so happy that the pain is gone, which is understandable. But all talk of Dr. Hill goes away immediately hmm. because the pain is gone. Hmm. And that's all that matters. And I just had this thought of like, you know, what you were just talking about is, you know, sometimes if you believe in God, but sometimes, you know, even when you don't, I mean, when we had, um, Corbin Burnson on, you know, he talked about not really being a religious person at all, but then when his father passed away, suddenly starting to ask questions. Mm -hmm. Now I'm sure if you were to ask him, he wouldn't, he he wouldn't say, well, I'm glad my dad died because now I know God. Like, I don't think he would say that. It's more just, you know, there's a, there's also a reason that in the Bible it says like it's easier for a, a camel go to go through the the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. And I think it's the idea behind that is that when things are going well, you can feel particularly self sufficient. Mm-hmm. You feel like you don't need God, and you feel like I've I've got this worked out. But it's when things don't work out that you start asking why, why did this happen? And it might lead you to larger questions of why is there injustice in the world in general, which then also might lead you to the question of what is injustice and why do I even have a sense of it? Mm-hmm. And that can lead you to God. It seems strange to me cause I've always believed in God, but it seems strange to me that people come to God as a function of negative things, but it happens all the time. Mm-hmm. And, to me, this idea, it's like she, her instinct is a good one. She wants to go see a real doctor who's going to, who's going to do all the proper tests and is going to find out, uh, well, he might not immediately say, Hey, your baby's the antichrist. He might not say that immediately. I don't know. I'm not a doctor, but he will definitely say something is wrong. And he might, I'm reluctant to say this given my personal views on it, but just for the sake of argument, let's go ahead and say he might recommend an abortion and aborting the antichrist. I would say is okay. (laughs) I guess I get it. I understand it. Although biblically it's like, well, it has to happen eventually. Um, But whatever the case may be, like she'll be in good hands, at least capable hands, hands Mm -hmm. that are on, that are going to be on her side. Yeah. Now, I don't want to put too much on the character of Dr. Hill because eventually he does betray her. Mm-hmm. Although he still thinks he's doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. But um, so I don't want to say that he's a metaphor for God or anything like that. But in that particular moment, he is stability. He is looking out for her well-being. And mm-hmm. as long as she's in pain, that's when she's entertaining the notion that something is wrong and I need to seek him out. Yeah. 
once the pain goes away, once she gets what she wants, which in that moment is for the pain to go away, once she get, gets exactly what she wants, she's not asking questions anymore. There's nothing compelling her to, to go to, you know, towards the right thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I look at that and I look at the choices that Guy in the film makes and I look at the idea of idols and I feel like I look at my own life and think, okay, well, what are the things that I feel like if I had this, I would be happy. Mm-hmm. And it could be things I've lost. It could be things that I, that I've never had and that I want. Uh, and I get, ang- and I, and I sometimes get angry with God. It's like, well, you gave so-and-so this, why don't you give me this? Like, what's, what's mm-hmm. the deal? Um, and let, here, here's kind of an odd theological question. People often say that, yes, like God can absolutely handle it if we're angry at him. You know, it's understandable, you know, given certain circumstances to be angry at God. But um, I feel like even me going to God in order to yell at him is a net positive Mm-hmm. because I'm still going to God. Even yeah. if, even if I'm in that moment, let's say theoretically in that moment, I hate him. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think about that? I think, I think that's a very good thing. I think acknowledging your feelings towards God to him is always good because, uh, I think one, it can help us put those things in perspective. Um, I think two, it keeps us from, it keeps us from the idea that it's good to hide the problems that we're having. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think that's the way God wants us to live, to act like everything's okay. Um, and I think there are a lot of people who have been, a lot of people who have grown up Christian who have kind of been hurt by that, by this feeling like, well, I can't ever be upset yeah. with God. Like he, he's intending all things for good. So if I'm angry, then that means I'm, I'm uh, not trusting in his plan and things like that. And, uh, Ultimately, yes, in the ideal perfect world, we are all trusting in God's plan all the time and, sure. and uh, are able to rest in that in such a way that nothing ever phases us. But that's not the case for, I think, any human, uh, at least not all the time. So I, I think honesty with that, with God, is always is always a really positive thing. And I think it's something that more people, I think, need to need to be okay with because I think it'll help more people's walks to acknowledge those things and deal with them rather than feel like it's not right for you to be angry. Now, let me ask you this. If we go back to Job, Mm -hmm. we do see that there is a a moment. It's probably longer than a moment, but it's, there's a moment where he is angry at God. Mm -hmm. I would say, understandably so. Mm -hmm. um, And is just so furious. And then God talks back and it sounds like he's basically saying, shut up, kid. (laughs) You know, like, don't you realize who I am? Which certainly, it's like you, when I was younger, I looked at that and I said, hmm, it certainly doesn't look like God can take it when we're angry at him. Mm. It sounds like he's a little prickly, honestly. <laughs> um, as I've gotten older, I look at that and I see God being the ultimate authority and reminding him, reminding Job that I'm sorry what happened, but I am still the ultimate authority. It's important for you to remember that and that I am always in control and that, yes, these terrible things happened, but it will, I, I am still in control and I will still work things out yeah. for your betterment 
in the long run. Yeah, and, and you notice that in none of God's response to Job there does he ever chastise him for expressing that, the anger yeah. that he has. Um, any kind of chastising. There's really not a whole lot of it, but any of it is really just in, in Job not remembering who God is and yeah. not having faith that he yeah. is is the ultimate control and has the ultimate answers. And, you know, and when if you want to look at it, if you want to look at, like, uh, that interaction with God, but if you also want to look at uh, Mary and Martha and Jesus and the death of Lazarus, you have people that are complaining to Jesus just as Job is complaining to God and Jesus weeps with them yeah. and then goes and performs a miracle. Mm-hmm. Now, if we take these two things and put them together, it's we get an image of the ultimate authority that still has control, but still weeps with us. And it, and in neither case does, and you know what? I wanted to put this out there. It sounds like a joke question. <laughs> it is not. Has there ever been an instance in the Bible when someone is talking to God sincerely, not like some, you know, hmm. not like some uh, false prophet or something. Hmm. Um, and God says silence or something like that. I can't remember one, but that doesn't mean that, that it's not there. Nothing's coming to mind. Yeah. And I think, and maybe this is, maybe this is an image that I, that I want to have, but I also feel like Jesus, Jesus was always about like, no, 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 just come to me. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Like you could be a little, a, a stupid little kid. You could be a tax collector. You could be. I don't think he's a stupid little kid, but I don't remember what translation I read, <laughs> but I, that was definitely in there. Um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I guess that was a little flip, um, and maybe that attitude is the exact opposite of what Jesus was talking about in the moment. Yeah, um, bring the stupid little kids out. <laughs> oh, I wish this. I wish we could swear on this podcast because it just lends itself to it. Um, but yeah, it could be Lazarus. Uh, sorry, it could be. Um, um, oh my gosh. Tax collector. Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, thank you. Uh, I knew there was a Z in there somewhere. Um, it could be Zacchaeus. It could be, you know, uh, prostitutes. It could be kids, whatever. Uh, it could be Thomas. And the attitude was always like, no, 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 you can come to me no matter what. You know, and then, and at no point does God say, in, to Job, at no point does he say, shut up or you know, you'll like what you're given or whatever. It's, you know, it's, it's a reminder that I am in, you know, I am in control. You don't need to worry. Um, it's understandable that you're mourning and it's understandable that you're angry, but I am still in control. Mm -hmm. Um, and I recognize listeners that if you're, you might be going through some tough times and the idea of God being in control can be angering because it's like, well, if he's in control, that means he probably could have stopped this terrible thing from happening. Mm -hmm. And that would have really hit the spot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would encourage you in the same way as, uh, I'm talking about like with Rosemary wanting to go to the right doctor, um, let that, let that anger and that grief and that sense of loss, whatever it might be in regards to, let that drive you towards God. Even if you're, even if you're going towards him or in order to blame him, mm-hmm. like going to God is always the right thing. And I would say that if you're, maybe your life is going really well and you feel a little bit distant from God because the pain has stopped and you feel like, oh, it's, everything's fine. Like go even more, 
I would mm. say. Um, you know, there's that, uh, that story about the, the lepers and Jesus heals, I think, ten, was it 10 of them or 12? Yeah, I think it's 10 of them and then nine of them just yeah. run off and they're like, hooray, we're yeah. healed. And it's understandable why they're like, oh my gosh, I can, I can rejoin society. I'm yeah. so excited. And, but then one of them remembers to go back and say, hey, thanks for that. I appreciate <laughs> it. Um, once again, I don't remember the translation where I read that, but um, hey, thanks, pal. Uh, your ace is with me. Um, appreciate it, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, J-Man. So... But that's the thing is our natural instinct is that when things are going well, even if it goes from, it's like when you need to pee really bad. Okay. Just hear me out. All right. If you're in the car and you have to pee like super bad. Okay. It's all you can think of. (laughs) And then you pull over to say a Denny's on Burbank uh, and Sepulveda. I can't tell you how many times I've been driving up from a screening on the 405 <laughs> and it's like, uh Oh, bad things. And it's like, Oh, but that Denny's on Burbank and Sepulveda that that'll, that'll do just fine. Uh, and it's all you can think of. And it's like panic, panic, panic. And then you go to the bathroom and you don't even remember like that emotion is, is, has completely evaporated <laughs> and you just move on to other things. Now I know that's a weird analogy to make, but like, <laughs> when we have that relief, there's no longer that sense of urgency. And maybe that sense of urgency is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we should follow that. But anyway, um, so we should probably end because why shouldn't we end on a story about me driving up the 405 desperately needing to pee? And by the way, that's happened a lot. And it's <laughs> so all, if, and that uh, Denny's has never let me down. If anybody wants to see and uh, hang out with Tyler Smith, just feel free to hang out in the lobby of that Denny's. And yeah. It's bound to, it's on, bound to work like, out. Go every Tuesday around, let's say 6 p.m., and just wait for me because <laughs> I tend to take sc- screenings on Tuesdays, mm-hmm. and they're usually at the Wilshire screening room at like 3.30 or 4 p.m., and then I got to make my way up there. It's like, oh, this is a bad choice. <laughs> so anyway, um, but yeah, uh, so listeners, it seems weird to say this at the end of this because uh, I'm sure... You've, you've already seen it at this point, but if you haven't seen Rosemary's Baby, even though we've just spoiled everything for you, um, <laughs> seek it out anyway. Like, it's not a, it's, even though there's a big reveal at the end, like, the film is not all about its reveal. There are some yeah. movies that have a twist or a twist or a, or a big, or a big, that's done. It's just like, okay, I, we got it. This is not one of those. Uh, it's the craftsmanship, the performances. Uh, there's something that can be appreciated over and over again. Um, and uh yeah i think we will end there once again i don't quite remember what we're going to talk about next week it'll probably be the visit directed by m night Shyamalan, but i'm not 100 percent sure uh but in the meantime uh thank you everybody for listening josh thanks for being here you're welcome and we'll get you next time bye